improving sustainability of production of food on Earth. And within the time scale that we're working, our centre is certainly has an ability to put scale and focus behind the next seven, eight years. But the timeline for trip to Mars is well beyond that as well, I'm pretty certain. So yes, working on complete nutrition from plant-based sources, so all of the nutrients that we might need for our diets, including those that we traditionally get from animals, from plant-based sources. But it is very much about a revolution in our production systems in terms of efficiency. Hey, Space Watchers. This is Space Economy Insights with Kevin O'Connell and Dr. Emma Gatti. We would like to welcome you on this new episode of our podcast series on the insights of this exploding sector that is the space economy. Kevin and Emma will deliver in-depth conversations with guests from the most diverse and exciting fields of the space economy domain to understand where this is all going. This podcast series would not be possible without the support of our sponsors. Privateer is creating the data infrastructure that will enable sustainable growth for the new space economy. Check them out at mission.privateer.com. The support of our sponsors does not have an influence on our editorial autonomy and editorial direction. I'm Torsten Kreening, producer of the podcast and publisher of spacewatch.global. And now, lean back and enjoy the show. Kevin, over to you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Space Economy Insights. I'm Kevin O'Connell, your host. Let me start by welcoming my co-host, Dr. Emma Gotti. Hi, Emma. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on which time table are you on, which continent you are. Exactly. Today, we're literally spanning three continents to bring you this episode on the emerging space market segments for space food and space medicine, both absolutely essential for sustained space travel and habitation, whether on the moon or Mars or beyond. Today, we welcome Professor Matthew Gilliam, Director of a new Adelaide, Australia-based research center for Excellence for Plants in Space, or P4S. Welcome, Matt. We're delighted to have you. And lovely to be here, Kevin and Emma. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So we like to start these interviews by really asking our guests how you became interested in space and the space industry. Okay, so... How did I become interested in space? I guess that's an easy one. I Like many younger folk, and in fact, many people around the world, I think we have a fascination with the next frontier. As a kid, I was brought up very much on a diet of things like David Attenborough and getting into nature, but complemented with a healthy supply of science fiction, which plots our next steps, so Star Trek and Star Wars and the like. But those those kinds of things, you know, the exploration aspect and, you know, plotting our future really can inspire the next steps of humanity. And that's what we're essentially working on now. Excellent. So please tell us about the center, including the many partners that you have joined together for the important initiative is it strictly designed for enabling space travel and presence over long distances, or is it to inform us as much for about food and medicine here on Earth? So we have been able to be lucky enough to be funded through the Australian Research Council, which is a federal government initiative. It's essentially the premier funding initiative in Australia in terms of fundamental research linking with industry. 
And we are a virtual centre. We are based across Australia in three states. So that's South Australia, so at the University of Adelaide and Flinders University, in Victoria, in Melbourne, so the University of Melbourne, and also La Trobe University in Western Australia, the University of Western Australia. And we are linking with another 35 partners from around the world and really putting all of our skill sets together. It's about finding the synergies between our partners to really not compete in these areas that are, at the moment, impossibly hard. What are we doing? We are supporting and enabling the technologies required to get further and deeper in space, so breaking our dependence from Earth. But at the same time, if you think about it, with the closed systems of space, that's the ultimate in sustainability where we have to get to. So you can't take everything with you or those things that you can take, you can't get resupply easily, especially that nine-month trip to Mars. So it's very much about breaking the mould working, if you like, outside of the box to solve the problems inside the box in terms of on-Earth sustainability. So can we bring those zero-waste concepts, those on-demand manufacture of medicine, as you alluded to, if we get sick on Mars, we can't wait that nine months for a medicine we need. We have to produce it within hours, within days of that demand. So we're working on both very much the on-Earth sustainability question but also the enabling the currently impossible, that long-term space habitation. You mentioned the Australian Research Council. We've been very excited to watch Australia's increasing interest and activities in space over the past few years. And I know that the centre is seen as an important Australian contribution to the Artemis Accords and other space partnerships. And you've already suggested that just by virtue of the number of organisations that are involved. Can you shed some light on that from the Australian government perspective? Will it complement similar initiatives at NASA and the EU and in Japan? Or what will be different, maybe? Highlight those issues for us, please. NASA is certainly one of our partners. So we are, as you say, an Australian contribution to the Artemis missions. Australia are one of the countries that have signed the Artemis Accords. Yes, so I guess the question is, what are the Australian government's view? And I'm not an Australian government (laughs) spokesman, so I won't be able to comment on that. But what I can say is that the Australian government and people see space as an area of extreme importance, whether that's to secure services that required for on-earth observation, for weather, for sovereignty reasons and the like, but also They see, and as many people have seen over decades of space exploration, it's the innovations that you get from it, from really pushing the boundaries that feed on to improve our everyday lives. So I think NASA have over 2,000 innovations listed on their websites, the NASA spin-offs for various technologies, from laser eye surgery to air filters to anti-corrosion paint, the camera on any generic phone that you might have in your pocket. So, yeah, there's a whole list there, but we're working specifically, I guess we're more targeted in what we're doing. We're looking at food production, at medicine production, those kinds of things. So we're really honing down on an area that's going to be important to us here on Earth as well. 
the big part, and I think it comes back to that first question you asked me as well, is space is a great inspiration to many people, especially kids. And it certainly was to me. And I've seen it in the classrooms too. So I've been working in drought tolerance and salt tolerance of crop plants and very important things, put them into breeding programs. We've got innovations in wheat, barley, soybean, grapevine, and the like that are out there being used in the field. You go and talk about that in classrooms and the kids are like, yeah, that's all right. Okay. When's break time? You go into classrooms and you talk about space and they run the lessons for you. You know, the first questions, obviously, or no, sorry, the second question is often about how they go to toilet in space. But then you can basically talk about anything afterwards. So it's about engaging the next generation in STEM activities, which we know all is very important to progress society, having a technological and evidence-based way going forward with the many challenges we have on Earth from climate change to what have. So we are very much, and the government have supported in this, is because we have this ability to really engage as well as deliver these technological improvements that are going to serve economic reasons. So biomanufacturing on Earth, it's predicted to be potentially up to a 30 US trillion dollar industry by 2030 and growing rapidly. So that's the production of medicines and plastics in biological organisms, things like that. And, you know, there are examples, especially in the States, that the nation's really starting to double down in this area. It's a sustainable way to produce a lot of products. I'm very excited to hear about your discussions about how things are going at the university. One of the things we know is that we have to get a much greater appreciation of the value of space here on Earth, and the university is going to be one place where that actually takes place. We know that if we're going to hit the maximum potential of the space economy, it's really going to require a wide range of skills and talents, uh, including non-technical skills and talents. It's delighted to hear that folks remain very interested in space, and we're going to have to keep pushing that from a, if you will, public relations perspective. Thanks very much for those answers. You really stimulated a handful of both technical questions as well as questions about the human aspects of space and what you've covered. Why don't I turn it to Emma for a couple of minutes just to see if she has a couple of questions about some of the technical aspects of this. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Matt. Matt, you just mentioned drought tolerance, and I know your areas of research are actually crop plant nutrition and stress resilience. So I can see the connection between agriculture and space. However, I think that we really need to hear from you what inspired the idea behind Plant for Space? Because even in a crazy field like space, the concept of space agriculture is pretty original. So I think I really want to hear what was the principle, what was the beginning, what planted the idea, just if you allow me the pun. No problem. And there's yeah, no, no deficit in puns in this area, as we're finding. <laughs> we can talk about boldly growing now. <laughs> we are really putting together many of the skill sets and people working in this area. So the big push here and the rationale behind it is certainly Artemis and that the quest to to go back to the moon, to establish a base at the moon and a human presence there, and to develop the technologies to go beyond. Without that rationale, that there's no real reason to do it. The, obviously, space has been a place that plants have been grown on the IS and the previous space stations before that. 
for many years, for decades. However, it's a very small footprint. All the growth systems are below a meter cubed in terms of footprint. And it's not, in fact, I don't think they've grown parsley yet, but it's essentially parsley on a plate. It's a garnish. So it's about providing some supplemental food because astronauts in space on the ISS, they've they have a monotonous diet of prepackaged, reheated, rehydrated food. And the astronauts, they lose weight and performance because they lose an interest in eating. And these are high performance athletes. If you lose 10% of your body mass, you're significantly losing performance as well. So in terms of the psychological aspects of growing plants, which is very important, we all know from COVID, many of us went back into the gardens and had an interest in that, that connection with nature as we were losing connections with other parts of our lives. And astronauts certainly have that when they request special treats. They often request a crunchy apple or something fresh and that is not a pizza or a burger. It's something certainly a little fresher than that. And yeah, that requirement now that we are going beyond the 450 kilometers away from Earth or whatever the International Space Station is to 55 million kilometers away, which Mars is and that nine month trip, we have to break our dependence from Earth in terms of resupply. One of the ideas is the initial missions on that three-year round trip to Mars, they will pre-deliver food. However, we're still not able to do that, one, because of the mass constraints, and maybe Starship will eventually fix that. However, we are talking about food that has to have a shelf life of maybe three to five years, and food doesn't have the nutritional the ability to keep the nutrients in the food forms to the levels required for that amount of time. So really, and as we know from exploration throughout history, relying on resupplies is a problem and having the ability to produce on demand is the way forward. And so that's what we're working on. So that's a real driver from the space angle. And I can talk maybe in a minute in about the driver from a scientific angle as well. My basic question here is, uh, can you lay out for me, how are you going to create medicines out of plants in space? Because it seems the level of complications are so many. <laughs> can you explain us for a person that is not an agronomist or is not mm. a space scientist? That's right. And that's the difficulty of this is exa exactly the reason we need to invest now. And we need to invest significantly in it. So these centers that are funded are very much ones that require fundamental discovery and a significant funding platform. So we are funded for the next seven years. In fact, it'll be eight years by the time we fully operational. We're going through a ramp-up phase at the moment. We're, our programs have been running for the past three or four years anyway, but we're going through a significant ramp-up phase at the moment. And the kinds of things that we need to do is to, if you like, hijack the higher metabolism of plants. So we've chosen plants because they have this more complex metabolism and much more than things like bacteria and yeast where some of these kinds of products are produced already. But we've got a whole raft of medicines already that are produced from plants, from headache medicines to anti-cancer drug to what have you. And it's essentially about 
tuning those organisms to produce things more quickly or in higher amounts, or putting those whole pathways from one plant into another plant that is an easier and more tractable production system. So plants will not be the only answer here. We will still produce things in some of these other biological organisms, but plants will be the option of choice for some things. We can do things like turn the production of the medicine on by changing the light frequency that we give them. So you can have a plant, for instance, that could produce five or six different medicines, but you give them a different stimuli and it will produce a medicine of that you require. So you can have this library of different seeds that are very light that can produce a variety of different medicines and you can multiplex them in certain ways. Or one thing that we're working on and is already getting to a point that I think in a few years we can deploy is it's basically dial up a DNA sequence. And much like we have with the COVID vaccine, we've been able to inject people with a sequence of nucleic acid that's encoded a protein that allows a a response. We can do the same thing with plants. We can inject them with DNA or RNA and they can produce within hours our thing of choice. And that can be an anti-cancer drug, that can be a headache medicine or or stimulation device to keep people awake. When we're nine months away in terms of travel time, about half an hour in terms of communication time, we can essentially dial up that DNA sequence, download it, make the DNA very quickly, which is quite easy to do nowadays, and inject it into that plant and produce within hours what we require. And that's what we're working on. And and that is a technology that will be available in the not too distant future. Wow. Wow. That's absurdly fascinating. The fact that you mentioned DNA sequence brings me to the next question. We were wondering which type of medicines are you planning to create? Because you mentioned a DNA sequence. I wonder, are you thinking to create vaccines or antibiotics or just simple, as you mentioned also, headache, painkillers, something like this? Yeah. So our initial targets aren't the more complicated proteins, but we will be working on those later in the center. So you're right, we have to tune the plants first to accept these kinds of things. And the slight difficulty with these more complicated things like antibodies is that you have to have all of these post sort of production processing steps. And you can do some of those within the plant for modifying the proteins so they're not rejected by humans. Proteins have all these little decorations on that you might have to put in. So these little carbohydrates on the outside and things that the humans can reject if they're not decorated in the right way. So it's slightly more complicated there. It is possible. Some people are working on them. I think there have been a number of companies that have been working on vaccine production and antibody production in plants over the past decade or so. So our initial targets are a lot more simple. So things like the NASA, you might be aware, have a list of essential medicines for space. And a lot of them are things like things to keep you awake, stimulants, and things to put you to a sleep as well, or, or allow you to sleep more soundly. So we're working on those. And that we've got a number of anti-cancer drugs as well that we're working on as well initially. And yeah, we'll move on to the more complicated mechanisms when and drugs when we 
perfect the ability to both produce and extract in plants. Talk about the growing environment for a moment. Talk to us about, obviously, while you can do all these things, you'll have a restricted environment of space, for soils, for water, things like that. How do you think of those kinds of contexts for doing the exciting kinds of things you're talking about? All of the minds that are thinking about this so far, and obviously we're not unique in this, and we've been fortunate to partner with many of the people around the world doing this already, is think of vertical farming. So we are looking at a footprint on Moon and Mars. And in fact, the Mars Dune Alpha simulation of a Mars habitat that's at Johnson Space Center have, have just released some of their pictures and have shown these little vertical farming setups in there as well. And production has to be very conscious of its physical footprint. So there is a competition for area and volume in all of what we're doing because it has to be enclosed. We, especially when we're talking about Moon and Mars and not necessarily the space vehicles here, even though the constraints of space is obvious there too, the atmosphere on the Moon and Mars require that, or lack of atmosphere, I should say, on the Moon and a very hostile one on Mars in terms of gas requires us to have an enclosed habitat. Light levels as well, we have to be most likely dependent on artificial light, so LEDs, which is, again, another innovation from space in terms of using them to grow plants. And we are looking at hydroponic or aeroponic systems, certainly on the Moon and Mars. So putting nutrients in very efficiently, we're talking about 99% less nutrients used often compared to irrigated agriculture and water use because it's about fully recycling. It's about taking waste and recycling that and putting it back in for nutrition as well and water. There are some plans to use regolith in the Moon and Mars as well. There are some significant issues with that. One is, for instance, we don't have any Martian regolith yet, so right. we don't know what it's exactly like. And you may have seen reports a couple of years ago that some of our collaborators from the University of Florida, Annalisa Paul and her team, grew plants in lunar regolith, and they grew, which was amazing, but they didn't grow particularly well. There were many right. responses, stress responses there. So we've got a lot to work out there. But some groups are looking at regolith as a medium to extract nutrients as well. And so there's a possibility there. So instead of growing directly in them, you can either modify the regolith to a point that you can grow, so increase its water use capacity, increase its nutrition. So you can modify them, but also extract nutrients from it. And maybe long term, way into the future, I think that might be a way forward. So you can increase the variety of plants grown. But we can also, with our vertical farming approaches, also look at those biological questions of which crops we can grow in there and expand the range well beyond what is used on Earth. What is the advantage of making anti-cancer medicines in space? Is it a logistic approach, like we need to make medicines for astronauts, so these medicines have to be produced in space? Is it a long-term planning when we will be living on Mars, we need to think about alternative methods on how to produce medicines. Oh, yes, more of us, so a biological 
Earth approach, like maybe producing medicines in mm. space can give some advantage compared to medicines produced on Earth? Yeah, that's a good question. So we do know that space, particularly microgravity, as being a fantastic laboratory and production system for certain things. So the growth of crystals, for instance, in space, there's been a whole swathe of studies going forward there that allow us to, without the force of gravity, you could grow them a more pure way. And I don't think for a minute that the production of things in plants is going to be easier or better or more necessarily initially more efficient in space because plants did not evolve to grow in space. They certainly didn't evolve to also grow in controlled environments. And that's what we're looking at. So the kinds of things that we're talking about are potentially 20, 24 hour light or constant light. Plants didn't evolve to grow in those. They've evolved to survive the worst day of their life or the worst week of their life. So a drought, a frost, a lack of certain nutrients, those kinds of things, or toxicity. And in controlled environments, and one of the scientific drivers for what we're doing is that you can more consistently produce higher yields, more nutritionally dense foods if you target both the engineering side and the biological at the same time for that goal. And there's been a lot of work in the engineering side. There hasn't been a lot of work in the biological side. And so what you'll find in controlled environments at the moment is that the majority of plants grown are things like microgreens and lettuce. And that's okay, but it's certainly not going to lead to a long-term profit in that industry. So we're working on the kinds of plants that we can grow and modify and basically re-evolve a lot of plants so they can grow in those conditions, optimized for better, quicker growth, whether that's the production of food or whether that's the production of a medicine within a plant form as well, and working on things like zero waste as well. So it's really about using this goal of going further than we've ever gone before and sustaining life beyond our atmosphere for long periods of time that is pushing this re-evolution of plants to make them more sustainable for production and more efficient for production here on Earth. Incredible. I think maybe we can now focus a bit on the human aspects of this challenge. Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, th this is really an incredible conversation. And you've just touched upon some of the economics of doing this, both for spaceflight, which will be completely unique, but also how we might improve our ability to do this kind of work for benefit here on Earth. But let's, let's transition for a couple of minutes. You hit earlier, Matt, on the fact that when astronauts are doing all their good work in space, they often focus on mealtime as, as the most human of aspects. It brings them together, they share food, etc. And however, a handful of astronauts over the years have playfully acknowledged that there's no taste or flavor or smell for things in space. A colleague of ours has had the Zero-G Kitchen initiative aboard the International Space Station where the astronauts were baking chocolate chip cookies, mostly to send them back down to Earth for an educational campaign. And that was very difficult because there was at least a belief there was some semblance of smell or maybe it was an imagined smell, yet the astronauts could not enjoy a single bite of the chocolate chip cookies. The question I have here is, will we have the luxury, given all the tremendous scientific advances we're pursuing, will we have the luxury of being able to focus at some level on taste and flavor and texture and things like that for future food. Yeah, that's a very important aspect. And 
the smell of space or I guess the stench of space, the ISS is not the most uh, pleasant of environments for, you know, it's been there for many, many years. There's buildup of biofilms up there and obviously the daily routine of just constantly having to fix things as well as run the scientific missions requires that, yeah, mealtimes are something that are treasured, but flavour, texture, very important as they are for plant-based foods here on earth as well. So I don't know if you've had vegan cheese, so plant-based cheeses and things like that. There's an interesting texture to those. I think there's a lot of work that can be done there. There's a lot of work that can be done on plant-based meats or meat simulants, if you like. We are absolutely focusing on flavour and texture, and that can be through that's a food science question so one of the things that's very important in this center is that we are multidisciplinary we have plant scientists but we also have food chemists food physicists we have psychologists we have lawyers they're working on questions about what we can and can't do in space currently and what we need to sort out to enable those kinds of technologies so the question of gm in space for instance is a big one that we can talk about later but yeah food flavor texture variety are all things that are essential that we work on everyone's not going to have a a constant diet of cream slime it's not going to be much better than it is at the moment so we might have a limited number initially of base materials to work with but we've certainly got to process them into a variety of things and again with that question of modification of plants we can add in a whole variety of flavors in there that can change the experience for the astronauts. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of an example that some of our listeners may be familiar with on the Gemini 3 mission in 1965, which was famous for many aspects of learning about how to bring astronauts safely into space and back. But one of the reasons it was famous is that because there was a corned beef sandwich smuggled aboard and for which the bureaucracy was not very happy and somehow prevented it in the future. It does raise the question is that, and you hit on it before, will there be a day where I can get a burger and fries in space? It may not be the daily meal or maybe a pasta carbonara in a way that I don't have the ability to do that today. I'm sure that in a world where there's limitations on what we're able to eat, the occasional good meal beyond the norm would be well appreciated by the astronauts. Yeah, and to be fair, the group at Johnson Space Center that work on a lot of the diet questions through decades of supplying the missions in space, they have been able to make many improvements in terms of food storage, food safety, and nutrition as well. So we've really advanced a lot there, but there's a lot more that can be done, particularly by the incorporation of fresh ingredients. And I think that's the important aspect that we're bringing. It's that increased variety. We can talk about the tending to plants as well It's and the psychological aspect of that. It's not only having those things to eat, but it's also caring and nurturing for those things that bring a great psychological boost to very busy people, but those that need an occasional downtime to really refresh their minds and keep them sharp. Absolutely. So as we see space becoming more and more commercialized, one of the dimensions we're looking at is the arrival of commercial space stations. And uh, I'm sure that both as a source of possible research for the initiatives that you have, they'll be interesting. Are you also working with them on what future space travelers will want to have from a nutrition and medicine perspective? 
the commercial, the new space commercial providers are essential in, without them, Artemis, I'm sure, wouldn't be happening at this time frame anyway. And they, as you say, are going to take over the platform of low Earth orbit. And there's a variety of platforms out there. And we are working with those providers to really push forward both the scientific aspect. So in terms of what kind of science can be done in space and what really high quality experiments can you do? The astronauts on the moment at ISS are very constrained in their time. And also the platforms, they've grown I think organically is probably the wrong word, but over decades, obviously, the new modules have gone in, but it's not an ideal science lab in terms of design from the very beginning. And so I think there's opportunities to really push that forward. And in terms of our real goals are not around space tourism, but I guess there could be commercial opportunities in the future that allow the research continue. So having income from those kinds of areas, it's not a goal initially, it's not something that we're even discussing, but I think we have to be realistic. I think if there are those commercial streams of income, then that would be sensible to link the two to really push things forward. Yeah. And I suspect that when we get into the age of space tourism for more than a small number of people, we're going to have to accommodate different medical aspects that people have as they go to space. For example, a diabetic or someone who needs to go gluten-free or someone needs some other special care and feeding in because of their unique biological makeup. Uh, and so we'll probably see much more diverse research even as we try to accommodate folks like that into our future space travel plans. Yeah, more than likely. Absolutely. I'm intrigued by your comment about having the lawyers involved. I actually just <laughs> published an op-ed on what we're calling in the United States mission authorization. And uh, what we're suggesting is that as space travel takes place for so many new kinds of space missions. Many more federal agencies here in the United States and obviously elsewhere uh, will get involved. And the simplest that we got for readers to understand was the FDA here in the United States and whether we're seeing agencies of all kinds really take an active interest, even at the one-person level, and the kinds of responsibilities they'll need to have as people go to space. Yeah, there's a lot of movement in this area now. We haven't answered, we, we don't know the frameworks for things like growing GM crops in space and the consumption of those. Something that scientists have done extremely badly over decades is to work on research that is left on the shelf because there's no requirement for it or we can't utilize it. What we made sure very early on in these programs is to integrate the, those kinds of policy, the kinds of human public engagement activities that really make sure what we're doing is going to be acceptable down the track and there are pathways for their utilization of these technologies. So it, it's vital. There's a lot of work to be done there. Interestingly, especially to me, but not to uh, space lawyers, is that when I go into classrooms and talk about space, and particularly maybe the older kids, so those closer to university, I guess those that are more savvy about income, space law appears to be a, something that interests a lot of people. And yeah, the amount of interest and questions that I get around those things and people approaching us for internships, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, a big area, very important area. Without that, we would not be able to do what we are planning to do and we wouldn't understand the kinds of areas that we can work in. So it's essential. 
It's also another area where people see an opportunity to create governance regimes, cooperation regimes in a way that are different than there are here on Earth. And I'm sure it attracts a lot of attention from the students and lots of other mm -hmm. folks. I agree with your point that space law is very popular beyond the legal community. Yeah, and I think you just picked up on that, expand on it, the ability of space to bring people together. And that is something that really appeals to many people. And this collaboration was very easy, relatively easy to put together in terms of scientific collaborations, at least, because we know that the problem is bigger than one group, than one country. And that has been space all along. Obviously, there's some difficulties at the moment with the collaboration between China and the States in terms of space and, in fact, lack of collaboration. And then the difficulties around the Ukraine conflict sure. and engagement with Russia. And that's been, a, I think, a massive disappointment to much of the space community. That link between Russia and the States was very strong in the space sector and went you know, the politics of it weren't involved until that recent conflict. They could engage and collaborate. However, I think as a society, we need to tackle problems on this planet that requires collaboration. And certainly when we go beyond this planet as well and look down on the planet, I think you spoke to Alice Gorman recently about things in space with the, certainly the space junk would have been brought up and the collaboration required for the congested manner of space and how we deal with that, but also going beyond and tackling this almost impossible problem. So yeah, bringing people together. The chair of our advisory board is the chair of the UN Committee on Safe peaceful uses of space. So that's Stephen Freeland. Sure. And yeah, he sits and um, with all the members of the UN Council there, and it's a really powerful way to start dialogues, even if there are other sensitivities there. So yeah, space is a great unifier. Yeah, I think all folks that are involved in space have an ability to collaborate. I often talk that in light of those difficulties that you've mentioned, the private sector activities that now comprise most of space activities also offer an opportunity for people to collaborate and share practices and, and things like that. So we have a lot of work to do, but obviously a lot of people who can actually make a positive contribution while we sort out some of these other larger geopolitical issues. Emma, do you have anything else at this point? Yes, I have a philosophical question. <laughs> For both of you, actually, is an observation that can turn into a question. It's coming from your previous observation, Kevin. You asked Matt when we will be able to have a burger and fries in space, when space food is going to taste like what we experience on Earth. So my question for Matt, that is an expert in this sector, but also for you, Kevin, that you see all the sector from an economical point of view, is whether maybe in the future... It won't be the other way around. Like we keep thinking about space food like it should resemble food on Earth. However, I'm wondering if at some point space food will be so advanced that food on Earth will resemble space food. Let me clarify why I'm asking this. We do have a huge problem in the food production system on Earth, and we know that. It's built on exploited animals. Uh, it's dependent on fertilizer. We keep cutting forests to produce farmland. So it's very difficult for us on Earth to design a sustainable food system. So I'm wondering if this space food process, this space food research is in a sort of way to catch two birds with one stone. 
Yes, we are studying space food for space exploration for astronauts, but we are also trying to apply this research to a very tangible, concrete problem that we're having on Earth. What do you think? Am I too far out? You've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly why we're doing this, for improving sustainability of production of food on Earth. And within the timescale that we're working, our centre is certainly has an ability to put scale and focus behind the next seven, eight years. But the timeline for trip to Mars is well beyond that as well, I'm pretty certain. So yes, working on complete nutrition from plant-based sources, so all of the nutrients that we might need for our diets, including those that we traditionally get from animals from plant-based sources, zero-waste plants optimised for controlled environments in a very efficient use of mined resources, if you like, for fertiliser, for water, linking it to things like renewable power sources to make it completely renewable, so it's very low carbon footprint. In fact, hopefully, possibly one day also positive in terms of the carbon capture. And it will never completely replace broad acre-based agriculture or some kind of sources of animal protein. But it is very much about a revolution in our production systems in terms of efficiency. And it will be initially for high-value products because we're talking about technological investment and we're talking about doing something in decades rather than 10,000 years of domestication of plants and animals for agriculture and the agricultural revolution that's happened since the 1700s. But we are certainly looking to really revolutionize what we can do in terms of production on Earth. So yeah, very much those dual goals and what we're looking at. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Kevin, what do you think? So I'll just put a short code on the end of that by saying so many other things that we've had benefit of in the space age. This will be another area where the benefits to us here on Earth in many of the ways that Matt has spoken about will again create returns beyond our wildest imagination. I'm in agreement and I don't think you've gone too far with the question. Absolutely. With that prophetic end, why don't we say thank you to Matt Gilliam of the University of Adelaide in, in Southern Australia. It has been a fascinating conversation today about how we're going to sustain life as we head toward the moon and Mars again, and but also how we're going to create tremendous new opportunities here on Earth to change production that relate to human sustenance and, and our way of life. Well, Matt, I want to say thank you very much, Emma. Any final words? It was fantastic. So fascinating. So interesting. There are so many more questions. And thank you, Matt, for this conversation. And I'm really looking forward to explore this with you guys further because this was enlightening. <laughs> it was an absolute pleasure talking to you both. Thank you, Emma and Kevin. And yeah, look forward to having myself or one of the team update you in years to come. So thank you. We're very excited. Thanks very much for spending your early Monday morning with us. Thank you very much, Matt. Yeah, thank you. That was our second episode of the Space Economy Insights with Kevin O'Connell and Dr. Emma Gatti. We would like to thank you for your time and your interest. This podcast is produced by Spacewatch.Global. If you like to give us your feedback, reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter or by email at radio at spacewatch.global. Let us know what you like to hear from us in upcoming episodes. Also, if you want to help us, leave us a rating on the podcast platform of your choice. Our host team is looking forward to the next guest. And so we say goodbye, arrivederci, and auf Wiedersehen. Till the next one.